Hi, everybody. David Noor back with you for another uh, Service Council in-service podcast series. I'm delighted to be joined by Charlie Warren, CEO of Convex. Hello, Charlie. Hey, Noor. Thanks for having me. It is great to have you. Uh, the episode is going to focus on driving efficient service revenue growth. For our audience, we're live on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, I would encourage you to jump in and ask questions of, of myself and Charlie, share your ideas, examples, perspectives. But uh, if you haven't had a chance to check out or, or lately check out Service Council, servicecouncil.com is the website. Fantastic community of field service, customer service, customer experience executives. And uh, again, a quick note from our sponsor, the symposium is coming up this September and uh, we're back in Chicago it's going to be a fantastic event if you have anything to do with, again, field service, customer service, customer experience. It is the go-to event of the year. Great gathering last year and uh, elated to, to return and work with John and Sheila and team. So, uh, Charlie, let's start with uh, your background. If you could kindly share where you've been, what you've done, how you've arrived here, that'd be a great start. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks again for having me. And I'm excited to return to Chicago for the conference as well, which we can talk more about. I'll start with where I grew up for a couple of reasons, um, and that's the Detroit area. And we started this business because we think there's an incredible market need and an opportunity to partner with our customers. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. But on a personal level, I find you know it's deeply rewarding to work with these types of businesses. I think about it as sort of the backbone of the American economy. And I spent the first part of my career working in and around uh, both finance and uh, distributed energy resources and had some firsthand knowledge of some of the problems on the go to market and operational side of these businesses and, and set out to solve them. And so sort of wake up every day, grateful to serve these types of businesses, both, you know, small and some of the biggest companies in the world. And I think that empathy for the end user is really important. And that's that's in my roots. Love it. Love it. Fantastic. So tell our audience a little about Convex. And by the way, I think you guys were selected as the most innovative tech company at the last symposium. So congrats on that. Thank you. Thank you. Congrats to our engineering team for all the hard work and all of our product folks um, and their tireless efforts to, to launch new things for our customers. Our mission is to be uh, the most important partner to digital first commercial services businesses. And these are primarily companies that install, maintain, and service large pieces of equipment uh, in geographic spaces or in you know physical structures like buildings. And we have a whole host of products and offerings, but it comes back to our commercial services platform, which does really two things. It helps sales and marketers find and qualify new opportunities at scale. And we do that through um, large scale data analyses and also application layer software. And we have a couple of products in market there, um, but also to help them enrich those relationships over time using their existing information, particularly their install base. And we'll talk about that today, but there's a huge asset there in the industry around install bases, and it's not really being leveraged. And we have um, some really powerful tools to bring that to market as part of a broader solution. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is we tend to really partner with our customers and not offer one tool here or there, but a, a whole host of offerings across multiple lines of business, whether or not that's you know inside sellers, field sellers, field marketers, demand generation, uh, sales operations, strategy teams uh, to help the go to market better and ultimately generate more service revenue. 
love that. Can you give us a story? Who's your buyer? What problem are you solving for them? Give us a case study or example of where you've you've actually created impact in their business. Yeah, and I'll, I'll give two. One, a deployment in our application layer with our flagship product called Atlas. And the second, with our market intelligence engine around healthy buildings, which is a very hot topic these days. And I think we'll really, we can talk about trends later. We'll be there for some time to come. Um, on the application layer, an example would be Stanley Security. It's a two to $3 billion uh, security access control company, which is actually just about to be acquired by Securitas. And we partnered with them a, a year or two ago around a specific set of problems around net new logo acquisition uh, with their field sellers. You know, they have a lot of people deployed on the ground all across North America. And unsurprisingly to you, Noor, they're really trying to grow service revenue and get that sort of wallet share increase, both at a site basis, but on a regional level. And so we were able to deploy uh, across those teams. Um, and the ROI speaks for itself. It's not just software to help people be more efficient, though we measure that. We can actually look at you know, EBIT generated from these deployments, uh, net of the cost of our software and or how we contribute and roll up to those sort of recurring revenue or digital attached goals at a corporate P&L level. And so I'm really appreciative of that partnership. And that was through their sales operations team um, and a number of folks there, but all the way up to the president. And so I come back to that partnership. It's not just a tool in one part of the business that procurement buys and no one uses, which is often the case in these larger companies. We're really tied directly to uh, the most strategic things that they're working on. And on the market intelligence side of things, when I think about healthy buildings, there's been a lot of work around that. And we have a number of deployments right now with some of the largest OEMs trying to figure out what would be a good suitable target to sell all these new products and services into. And that's down to the physical location level. And so we've built algorithms uh, with our engine that score properties across all sorts of entering attributes, COVID incidence rates, our own proprietary data, who are the ICPs in that physical structure. And we can talk more about this, but it's toward this broader goal of there's been more uh, total addressable market created in this part of the industry federal funding and not changing um, end user demand in the last couple of years. And now it's up to those companies to actually seize that demand. And that requires sellers, that requires marketers, that requires actually getting contracts signed and new product deployed. And we're you know helping uh, take advantage of that opportunity for our customers. So, so, so again, just want to make sure I understand. I, I'm, I'm a head of customer service or field service for a recognizable brand. Mm -hmm. And with the application layer, are you helping my service sellers better prospect, better understand? Are, are you like a HubSpot or Marketo or Salesforce for kind of field service? Are, give me give me more of the context of what are you helping me do in terms of growing my service revenue? Yeah, a few different use cases to sound like a software guy for a minute that we focus on and a few different types of personas across all those divisions but we'll take one specifically so let's take inside sellers and those folks are tasked with um, selling into the existing base so sort of crossing up sell of new products and services and net new you know complete white space analysis the way they do this currently um, is either through you know in some cases like randomly calling around field sellers will literally drive around but in other cases, they've got data sort of sequestered in other parts of the business around asset install base. And it's not, to use one of our customers terms, consumable. They can't do anything with it. So we have a couple different things we can provide for them. One is that visual application layer where they can actually see things 
on a map, that's a non-trivial uh, machine learning data engineering problem to actually map out what's going on in a physical location. Um, but more principally, it's that workflow software to help them actually stay on task to drive toward certain activity, which as you know, is really important if you think about sales funnels, et cetera. And then the third point, and this appears also in, in our marketing applications is who exactly are you gonna call them? This is also a non-trivial question. Um, and we can bring to, together information from all their systems and our proprietary information. So account contact information down to literally what is the person's name, who to call, but also that rich equipment information and that sort of property centric information of should we be calling into, you know, healthcare as a target or should we be calling to this Kaiser Permanente location in this part of San Francisco? Uh, and we can help them do that. And those same use cases hold for marketers just at a much larger scale. If you think about how they think about, you know, lead scoring campaigns. So those are some of the things we do sort of nitty gritty in the weeds. And we're working down to the branch level with these folks, you know, in the trenches, uh, not just at a corporate Got level. Got it. So, so culturally, any, any kind of uh, technology adoption, I think you would agree, big part of it is also cultural transformation, right? Absolutely. And most field service, customer service, customer experience, leaders, organizations that I've met that I know are rightfully so passionate about the service component, right? We want our technicians to show up, have the right parts on the truck, deliver a great experience for that end customer. Have you found it to be a challenge to shift their mindset from that delivery of the service to now let's go sell, let's go market, let's go create not a, just a cost center for those services, but a revenue operation and grow our revenue side. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, at least initially. Um, and so you got to meet folks where they are. And so a lot of the work we do with install base and with equipment information is in that sort of a warmer area where they're more comfortable thinking operationally. But to some extent, this has been driven by the market itself. And so those folks, bosses, and this goes up to the C-suite, which we have access to, has put out very aggressive goals around both growth in general and in particular digital attached growth or recurring revenue growth. So they're, they're in some cases in a hair and fire problem where they need to find a solution here. And so if anything, we're coming there as a partner to try and solve something really urgently for them. But you're absolutely right. Historically, there's been almost an aversion to talking about some of this. And we can talk about why that is. But right now, I think it's more like, oh, my God, I need so much help. We're so glad you're here. And, and that's why we're in business. That's fantastic. So talk about obviously the last couple of years you and I were talking has created more disruption in I think a lot of individual team organizational comfort level. Again, I'm used to my field technicians going out. I'm used to my you know help desk and call center folks, right? So now we're not even working in the same office, much less you got clients that have, you know, vaccination mandates and talk about some of the trends you've observed in field service in the last couple of years. And Charlie, here's a caveat that you believe is going to stay with us and mm -hmm. you believe it's going to continue to have material impact on the field service, customer service, customer experience space. Yeah, maybe we can talk later about some things that I think are more ephemeral or things that have come and gone already in the past. But in my view, there's three or four of these. You know, one would be finally a real focus on selling digital solutions into the existing base and beyond. And that's a massive transformation, but the goals are real and things have been promised to Wall Street. You look at the investor data X, there are real targets around 
not just recurring revenue growth, but subscription software business transformations. Two, I mentioned healthy buildings. I do think that's here to stay, even in a post or quasi post COVID world. Three, I do think there's some interesting knock on effects on labor constraints that we're seeing. People have been talking about the labor problem for a long time. COVID has exacerbated that, but it's having some interesting uh, effects on how folks are thinking about playing offense in their markets. And we can talk about that. And then sustainability has come and gone. There's been a big push around that. And I think given some of the federal emphasis, I think a lot of that's here to stay. And you see a lot of businesses investing heavily around retrofitting, how to build that retrofit business at scale. Those, those businesses have existed. They just haven't been very successful. And so I think there's a big emphasis around those four or so that we're seeing in the market. I'm happy to dive into any of them. Yeah. So let's talk about that a second. So you're right. Digital solutions, recurring revenue, subscription model, and some organizations, Charlie, again, I don't know about you. I feel like I'm speaking Portuguese when you talk about <laughs> SaaS model. And when you talk about, you know, this customer life cycle maturity and again, I, and, and, you know, present company excluded and a lot of the common relationships we have, I feel like some of the leaders we're talking to is dinosaur leadership, right? They, they don't, they can't grasp and they can't think that way. Like, what are we going to sell them as a subscription? What, and they're not thinking preventive. They're not thinking proactive. They think we're just here to fix things, right? So, so who in the organization have you found owns that? Because I mm -hmm. think that's a different mindset. That's a mm -hmm. different kind of, it's an opportunity to think and lead differently in terms of, the business model in terms of the value that's going to have to you know deliver on an ongoing basis talk a little about who you've seen own that function or own that area within organizations yeah and before that point i would agree and say that some companies will be left behind there are groups that are investing extremely heavily beyond within this and are going to win some of these races in these very competitive markets be it elevators or access control or building automation and then who's leading that change uh, who is it not typically are the groups in the, you know, the sort of quote innovation or digital uh, area. It's typically people who have incredible uh, political splits, sway, excuse me, within the organization already. And that sort of PL authority to, to drive change. They're not also always the folks who um, are up and comers or necessarily new to the organization. I've seen it go both ways, uh, but they te technically are, or typically are in that, sort of middle of the fairway of the business responsible for large P&Ls, whether that's the service business itself in a matrixed way, or whether or not that's an individual country or regional area. And those are the people who are able to affect change. Whenever folks are in sort of these ancillary business units spun up around this, they typically don't have the means to actually go uh, enact change. And so institutionally, as you know, they're often ignored or you know belittled in some cases. And, uh, and, you know, we partner with all sorts of folks, but that's what I'm seeing in the market. Got it. Today. Um, the other thing I got uh, excited about is you're talking about a, um, uh, offensive strategy when it comes to labor constraints versus we can't find people talk about a little difference between the two. Yeah. And we, you know, that is a conversation that's been had for the last 15 years and everyone listening here live and hopefully after knows that. What we're seeing in the market is a, is a bit of a shift. And I think this is driven partially through some of the supply chain, real exogenous shocks in the last six months uh, and that the impact on prices. But we're seeing customers look at how they do business offensively with go to market. And I'll give a specific example. V2 
vis-a-vis -vis labor constraints. So before they might sell willy-nilly across any given product offering or geo. And the knock-on effect for the service operations people is someone needs to go fulfill that work consistently and retain those contracts. And that's not an insignificant challenge. If for instance, you sell offering A in one location and offering B 40 miles away, uh, that needs to be serviced potentially by the same technician. What we're seeing people do is play offense and fit, say, where is our install base? Where ought we down to the physical location level, sell these types of products and services because we know they're going to be higher margin. For instance, if I sell already in Stanford University, my technicians understand some of those buildings deeply, deeply. They have a good understanding how to service them. Why would I go sell a low margin job at Berkeley? We don't know anything about Berkeley. Let's keep selling at Stanford and let's expand that logo. And that's what we're helping our customers do. And we're seeing that's our next generation of leader take, take control of the labor problem, Love not that. be controlled by it. Love that. I'm going to bring up a really specific example. Are yeah. you also seeing, and the question is, beyond servicing our own install base, beyond servicing my own elevators or my own controller boards, are you seeing a trend where I want to make sure we are subject matter experts, technically proficient, have the parts that we can also service across OEM lines? Yes, but not always. Back to your point about sort of leaders versus laggards, if you will. There are some folks who are not there yet. It's very comfortable as ABC OEM to just deal with ABC equipment. But the folks who are gaining market share, and you can see this in some of the data, are the folks that are taking it from other people and other groups. Uh, and that requires also a mindset shift. It requires also a people shift around how you compensate your marketers and sellers to go after that. But we're absolutely seeing that. And to tie it back to the Stanley security example, they have major targets around that. And we think we've been successful in helping them achieve that. That's fantastic. For our audience, if you just joined us late, you're listening to Charlie Warren, CEO of Convex, uh, a fascinating company that's really driving service revenue growth within organizations. And I love that, right? So within the install base, but also net new, how do we really transform the service function from one of a, an overhead and a cost center to much more of a revenue profitable and growth oriented kind of, so an opportunity to kind of reinvest. I tell most of my clients without margin, there's no mission. So if we don't figure out a way to build profitability into the business model, you should have no expectation that you're going to keep getting fed by other parts of the business. So talk about that a second. What are some best practices you guys have seen, you've recommended around driving kind of efficient service revenue growth? Give me a playbook. Give me a nugget or two of how do we, how do we pull this off? I would break it down in terms of the classic people process technology. And we think we're an important partner in that try it, if you will. On the people side, you need to incent people correctly. You mentioned sort of a transition in, in ways of thinking. There's a transition in how folks are being compensated. And if you're selling solutions as a service, that's very different than selling hardware. And you need to build compensation models and hire people who can do that sort of consultative value-based sale versus that reactive, if you will, order-taking sale. On the process side of things, and we're seeing major headway um, there in the last couple of years, really, you need to think about the metrics of the organization and what good looks like. And you were talking about speaking Portuguese, but not everyone is there in terms of, you know, terms like MQLs, sales accepted opportunities, 
what are the stages in Salesforce? Is Salesforce anything more than like an ERP database of our revenue or do we have it tied into other important applications and are we thinking about that sort of stack? And to the technology point, um, third and where we think we can add the most value, it's really about thinking holistically with partners who have long-term interest here and not having a hodgepodge group of tools that really don't connect, integrate, or work really well at the field level with the actual users. We could talk about adoption. And so we're seeing folks gravitate toward businesses and folks that understand the industry that are deeply tied into their existing systems and they're there to not disrupt how they're doing business, but really make them more efficient. But you need all three of those. And, and as you said, not every company is there, but folks are scrambling to get there just in the last couple of years. So, so I, I have to ask you, it, it reminds me of, I don't know if you've seen that, I think it's a sales cartoon where there's a guy selling a machine gun approaching a tent with a king who's fighting a war with swords. And the king says, I don't have time to see any pesky sales guys, right? So when, when you, this makes so much sense, when you go into some of these enterprises and mm -hmm. A, are you getting pushback, which is, I'm, I'm, I would be beside myself, but if you are, <laughs> What kind of pushback does anybody say? Actually, no thanks, not interested, don't want any revenue. Like, what what kind of pushback do you get? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't want to grow. Um, I actually have heard that before, but that's a topic for another time. Uh, you know, rolling out technology in this industry is not a foregone conclusion, or doing it successfully. And so, folks are mostly interested in can we get the adoption? They've been burned before. We all know that there have been people lose their jobs over some of these deployments historically. And two, you know, what is your real ROI? Like, how do we think about that? And we spent a lot of time making sure that we're set up in our partnership to make sense. Then the other thing we do is it's not a one size fits all solution. I mentioned all these different product lines we have. We want to meet the burning fire need in whatever division and whether that's, you know, demand generation, field marketing, field sellers, inside sellers, sometimes the channel we could talk about. And so it's not just like, hey, you got to buy the whole thing. It's what can we solve for you and solve your problems? And that that typically resonates. Uh, but you're absolutely right. This is not an industry that's purchased a large amount of technology or they've really only started doing that in the last five or 10 years. And that's for us, selfishly, a real opportunity. So talk about that a second. Again, I mentioned this earlier, any kind of technology rollout. There's, a, there's also a, a, we saw the symposium and certainly a lot of the trade publications talk about augmented reality and AR and VR and AI and ML. And I'm thinking, you still got people, you've got technicians that, that we've got the silver tsunami, you've got the great resignation, you've got the whole labor issue. And by the way, on my Apple watch, I, and you've heard this analogy, I can see when the pizza goes in the oven and when it's going to get delivered. And so the rest of the world is absolutely leading with digital first. And it seems like tech deployment and, and adoption a lot of these organizations just an uphill battle what have you found to be a kind of a success formula in not just introducing a cool whiz bang new anything but really embracing maybe some of the more seasoned field technicians and the service managers of this is the evolution of the space i have a lot of thoughts on this one but i'll be more concrete and say uh, on a sort of on a product and then post-sale basis. How do you, how do we do business? How does a company like this do business to be successful? On a product level, you have to have real first principles thinking about how the user, and this could be any type of person, will engage with the actual software. And there's a whole history of enterprise grade 
software as a service companies that have really, really bad, what we call UI UX. It's kludgy. It's not like Apple. It's really hard to use. And so we spend a huge amount of time and resources making the products enjoyable to use. Like people should like, like it. it should be like almost fun. And so we spend a lot of time there. And then it really comes down to not just selling something, but following through our CRO says he's a, you know, a promise maker and a promise keeper. And so post-sale, we need to make sure that folks have clear use cases, that they're using the products and services, regardless of what division they're in. And then that's tied to clear ROI. And we need to set them up for success previously. And I think one of the problems in this industry is that historically technology rollouts have been sold into IT without clear use cases, without clear ROI. And where do you end up? You get a bunch of people who don't use it or are unhappy and it collects dust and then everyone loses. Um, we're very much in the business of making sure that the usage and the ROI is clear from day one. Uh, for our audience, I've used uh, an acronym called PER, like per person for a long time. P is the planning, right? You just, you can't just buy the tech and, and everybody's got good intentions, but they're totally. solving point solutions. So the planning, including communication of what we're doing, why we're doing this well in advance. Um, Absolutely. You know, E is the enablement. You can't just roll it out. You got to create training. You got to create, uh, you know, job aids. You got to, you know, got to really gamification, Mm -hmm. uh, one client would hand out iPads for people that adopted it and used it. And so really enabling that and then, you know, reinforcing it. So the per the, the, the R is you got to reinforce it and you got to reinforce what's in it for them. And re I, I saw a Cornell paper that says, if you want anything to be remembered and repeated, it needs to be reinforced like seven times of why we're we doing this and how we're we doing this and how we're better off because of this. And if we've seen that as, as really viable in, in gaining adoption. So move on to real ROI. Mm -hmm. So you and I may come from sales and marketing backgrounds. I certainly get, you know, get it that if you're buttoned down and you're focused and you've got accurate data and you're talking to the right person, you're going to accelerate that acquisition and, and that, you know, kind of align the way you sell to the way they buy. But talk about the ROI. What ROI do I expect when I do that from my existing install base, which I agree with you, just may not be tapped, but also net new service growth opportunities. Yeah, we peg ourselves to a target of, you know, four to six times calculated two different ways. One is that efficiency. So we'll look at the imputed hourly wage rate of the folks using the product, map out what they do currently, how long that takes them, and then how more quickly they can do it with real usage data. Like literally we can track the clicks and, and how they're, they're going to market with our solutions. And that works for some folks and that's sufficient. It depends on the business and to some extent it depends on the industry. What's I think even more compelling is we will work with finance teams at these groups and look at opportunities that we have generated through, you know, crossing up like into the existing base or net new opportunities and follow them all the way down to the close margin adjust those and then we can look at you know uh revenue adjusted or you know ebit if you will divide by the cost of our software and back to your previous point or even the uh most standoffish uh service oriented leader who doesn't like anything to do with sales and marketing will look at that and say i want to invest behind that it's very clear how they're me letting me meet my both my margin goals on a net basis and my recurring revenue targets and we can tie right to that uh, any integration or any lens into NPS? Like so, so what I what I'm thinking is, and and I, Charlie, I often talk about the relationship starts after they buy, right? Mm -hmm. So you installed that 
elevator, HVAC system or whatever, the first service call that I make and, and the subsequent experiences that I have through the service organization is a pretty direct correlation to whether I want to deepen that relationship or I'm going to go find somebody else. So a lot of organizations have gotten savvy enough to cover NPS you know, information. Do you tie that at all back into a awareness? So if I'm a service sales professional, I want to know when something happened at that customer. So I'm not surprised by it. B, did we get it resolved? And can I salvage that into additional revenue opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that has been largely a focus around contract retention and less a focus on a coordination to upsell customers, you know, at scale with new new offerings. And so to give you a specific example, if the install base is not consumable, we can make a consumable in our application down to the serial number equipment family, you know, install date, useful life, what have you. But that's really powerful and paired with either on a one-off basis or at significant scale through lead scoring algorithms what's the state of our customer relationship? Do these, do these folks like us? Are we doing a good job? And you would hate, and this happens without our solution, sellers calling into these opportunities. Hey, they're a XYZ, they're our customer. They must be happy. Well, if you had been able to somehow check ServiceMax simultaneously and see that there have been four service calls at two o'clock in the morning, like maybe we shouldn't sell into them. And that sort of scoring at scale is where we're going with our business um, to drive, you know, better sales cycles, frankly, at the right time for the right customer versus, you know, blindly calling into those situations and, and ultimately eroding whatever is left of that relationship. We also will do win back campaigns with our customers. Sometimes they call lost sons. We lost these contracts 10 years ago. There's a new elevator company in there. We should go re-engage them. You know, there, maybe there's been turnover and the decision makers there. We can tell you literally who works there in that property now down to the the name and email address and telephone number and, and win those folks back long-term. I love it. You're like the zoom info of the, uh, the uh, field service world would just give me, give me exactly the person I need to talk to uh, talk about one size fits all. How do you customize this? How do you ensure? And, and is it as relevant to the large enterprises as it is the small, maybe a regional kind of service organization or the mom and pop business that goes on services heavy industrial or manufacturing space? Well, let me answer that in terms of the segmentation that I have maps of some of our offerings. We do work in the, what we call the commercial segment. We don't do anything in like the really small businesses. I think those are incredible companies. There's some good software that's been rolled out to them, but their needs are different. So we tend to work in that sort of mid-market segment and above, you know, call it 50, 100, 150 employees. These are regional players. These are also, as you know, these are very large businesses, sometimes from a P&L perspective or a number of trucks. And they can be quite sophisticated and complicated companies. And within those, it's really for me a question of, you know, again, what are the core problems that we're trying to solve? But in some cases, that's driven by the, the um, org structure itself. So in the smaller companies, typically marketing departments are nascent or not as large as, you know, they're regional businesses. They're not doing global deployments of things. And so we'll deploy more of our sales solutions. And typically they don't have full-blown inside sales teams you know, working with field sellers, it's more of a field sales orientation or a hybrid model. So that, that will constrain our solution, huge amount of value to provide. We started the business there. Um, we have very long-term customer relationships. When you scale into the global businesses, then it becomes a question of really, are they an OEM or not? And we have big deployments with global service, pure service businesses, but if they're an OEM, then there's even more opportunity with that install base. And they typically have those adjacent 
uh, you know, if not lines of business, uh, divisions around sales operations or operations or strategy. And we might do some professional service work with those folks. So it's a bit dependent upon the market and what end we're in and then what sort of, you know, businesses do they have, but coming back to, you got to solve a problem. There has to be a real problem that you're solving. And if you've got some whiz bang AR VR thing and no one really wants to use it, it's cause it's not really solving a problem that they care about. And so we start there with the problem and see if we can solve it, which also means in some cases not deploying everything we have because we don't think it's going to generate good ROI. We have that sort of long-term view. Or, or they're not going to be able to incorporate it. One of the things we found is again, good people, good intentions, go get point solutions. And uh, Charlie based on our own, kind of a baseline assessment of processes, kind of capabilities in tech stack, we found that they're using less than 20% of what a lot of these technologies are capable of. Yep. So, so yeah, I mean, again, my, my wife taught our kids, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? So deploying, you know, the basic functionality of a platform and then to kind of be able to grow it from there seems to make a lot of sense in Absolutely. that rollout stair step. Absolutely. Um. So, so... We talked about uh, driving revenue growth, people, process, tech. We talked about pushback, where you might get pushback. Um, go back to the trends for a second. Uh, are there some, what are some examples of that recurring revenue uh, subscription model, digital first that you're seeing that you're excited about and you feel like, ooh, that's got legs or that's got uh, you know, long-term viability and much more proactive than reactive kind of service. Yeah, I think at two areas and maybe one area that's less exciting. I think everyone knows that preventive maintenance agreements, classic long-term contracts are good. And so when I see that as the focus, I think, oh, maybe you're five or 10 years late. Uh, the areas that I think are exciting are uh, twofold. One, driving predictive maintenance offerings at real scale. Sometimes that in involves actually putting sensors on existing equipment or selling new equipment that sensor enabled out of the gate. And we could talk for hours about that, but actually driving value out of that. And in some cases, not letting third parties um, get in the way to do that and doing it on one's own and offering that as a service, which again, gets at literally not reactive, but proactive in terms of what they're offering. How exactly you monetize that and price and package it? I think the industry is pretty much still figuring that out um, in general. And then where I also see a lot of excitement is large-scale software platforms that are well built that have you know fantastic UI UX that serve specific purposes. There's a whole host of software that the industry builds for its customers that is not that, but there are good examples of what that looks like. And typically, it's drawing on what's their core competency, which is the equipment itself. Uh, and the service history itself, and how do you bring that to bear for a you know a property manager or building engineer owner to solve real problems? And so they're they're building software on their own, and we've seen this in other industries. That's that can be a real challenge. But the folks who are doing it well, I think of Johns Controls as a good example. These are great products, uh, and they need to sell them aggressively, you know, into the base and into new accounts, and we can help them do that. For our audience, we're live on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter. would encourage you to jump in. Anything around driving kind of service revenue from a field service, customer service organization. John Carroll. Hello, John. Always have great questions. So um, enabling field service workers has often been a question or debate. Should my field tech sell? And again, Service Council's got this great research around the voice of the field 
kind of service engineer. They do a benchmark survey. 11% of FSCs indicate they were dissatisfied with the pressure to sell or enable selling. Again, a cultural challenge, right? Do you want those field techs to sell or do you want a separate sales organization to kind of do that dirty the dirty work of marketing and selling? Yeah. I, I, my view is it's good to distinguish those roles. It can also be helpful to distinguish sort of account management. And we're seeing a shift in the industry there so that the salesperson isn't also to use a software term, the customer success person. You really want to distinguish those two. And I agree with John's point. It puts a lot of pressure on folks who are not enabled. They often don't have the technology. Like, don't make me fill out some form when I'm in the middle of a job in an like a complex boiler room trying to do something that might actually be physically dangerous to like, what's the serial number on the equipment? Like, no, I don't care. I need to get to my next job across town because back to our point, the sales guy sold something, you know, way across town. Now I need to go fulfill that work. I got to go to Berkeley. I'm going to stay in Berkeley. I got to go to Berkeley and I'm in Stanford in the basement. This is terrible. I want to stay at Stanford. And so I agree. I think it's important to distinguish those. And to that point, I just think it's important to have account managers who are quite literally account managers, long-term partners, and not just trying to do um, sales work themselves. Uh, are you seeing, um, John, thanks for that. And I encourage our other audience to kind of, again, jump in uh, with questions, <laughs> comments. We'd love to have, have Charlie comment on those. Uh, are you seeing, uh, Charlie, I'm dating myself. Most organizations had a sales school where you'd bring them in as BDRs or SDRs, kind of insight sellers, kind of teach them a script, teach them how to get in, how to get in the door, and then just kind of develop them. They became managers, leaders, and they would go to now enterprise selling or commercial selling. Are you seeing any kind of a sales development for specific, again, field service, customer service, customer experience kind of side of the house? It's starting it's been done well by the folks who have launched inside sales teams well, and that is not inside sales teams are still quite rare, despite the efficiency of that model paired with field sellers, but that's relatively rare still. And the other challenge of doing this is you're sort of rebuilding the plane while you're flying it. So if you're going out to sell these new software solutions, you need new types of sellers. It's a different skill set. You can train some folks who've sold other things to do it, but if you're selling software, you need software salespeople. If you're selling preventive maintenance agreements, you need preventive maintenance salespeople. And, and if you're selling equipment into the new construction market or the aftermarket, that's a different type of seller too. And it's very hard to repurpose these folks. And you know, it's, it's not fair to them either and change their comp model. So we're not seeing as much of the, the school mentality. It's just trying to, to poach folks from new industries. Uh, and we could talk more about the talent war there, but some customers are doing it better than others. Talk about, you said new type of sellers. How has that selling evolved? What, what what do the new sellers need to be thinking about and doing differently? So with the, the expense of maybe overgeneralizing, if you're a reactive seller, you might not be in the true sense selling. Like you might be getting calls to your office phone. This broke, I need this new part. And by the way, we're happy with our service contract and we'll renew it for another three years. You don't have to drive value conversations like you do if you're selling one of these recurring revenue services, some predictive maintenance offering. You need to talk about ROI and use cases and some of the more ambiguity around what their business's challenges are. Because as you know, some building engineers do not care if the equipment is like slightly sub-optimized. They don't care. 
Now they do care that's about job, downtime. That's job security, by the way. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like it's like don't take away my three-hour lunch and don't make me like, you know, um, tell my boss that our equipment is all not tuned properly. Like that's bad for everyone. So, um, so they're they're battling that for sure in the trenches and how they recruit people. Um, you mentioned and we talked about the pandemic in the last couple of years has dramatically impacted a lot of field service organizations. How has it changed the way you guys go to market? You sell again. You and I were talking about. I think 2019. I was on the road 208 days. I think I don't think I've been on the road more than 20 days or 30 days the last couple of years. So, and I don't know about you. I've I've actually have shaved, showered, got in my car, drove there, parked, went up in the building, sat in the room, had the meeting, and the whole time I'm thinking we could have done this through Zoom. Right. So, so starting to question the physical kind of in person. Mm -hmm. Talk about how your business and business model has changed in the last couple of years. In terms of our go to market, we've always been a hybrid organization with an inside sales team and folks who have territories. And you're right that there's an important, um, there's an important level of efficiency that's just never going away. And norms and expectations have changed around that, like we were talking about. That being said, we are so long-term in this industry and we're grateful to work at such senior levels of these companies. People still, maybe they appreciate it even more now when you get on a plane and go meet them and spend time with them and, and get to know them. Um, it's just, that tends to be much further into the partnership when we've already um, gotten to know everyone, established a lot of value and they just wanna beat around ideas of what more we can do. And that's really exciting for me too. Some of our best product ideas come from those kind of casual conversations. Like we were all talking about this, can you all do that? And the answer might be yes or might be no, but we'll put it in our backlog and have our product team think about it. So I still think that personal level is really important, but you're right. It's changed for us about when in the sales, you know, customer journey, we, we get engaged. Got it. So uh, I want to show you a, a maturity model, um, or let's just we can just talk through it for our, mm -hmm. for our audience who might just be listening. Charlie, I want you to think of a an infinity loop. Mm -hmm. On the left hand side, it's really the early stages of creating awareness. It's creating engagement. It's creating um, uh, evaluation of you know do I want preventive or predictive service, and then at some point I buy. And then on the right-hand side of the loop is the adoption, right? So now we're using the predictive analytics and the dashboards and an impact. Oh my gosh, mm -hmm. we're able to prevent those elevators from going down or that yeah. controller board overheating middle of July in Phoenix. And, and now I see the real value in the business and I've become an advocate, if not an evangelist for you. And then I renew. So I mm -hmm. renew now that service or that is a typical SaaS model. Yep. My question of you is where have you seen most organizations be really strong in that infinity loop and in those stages. And then you know where I'm going with this. I'm going to flip it. Where do you see them kind of really struggling? Where's the biggest challenge for them? I think they're fairly strong. You know, the good organizations post sale and delivering on the actual service and following the commitments because of the operational rigor of a lot of these businesses and the great folks that run that. Um, where we don't see as much strength is sort of the sales and marketing offshoots of that, which is once a customer is happy, what more can we do for them? Or to your point of ROI, how well are we communicating to all of our customers about our successes in these very often like localized environments? And typically on the marketing side of things, 
it ends up being more product marketing than sort of value marketing around these things. And I think that's a transition that they're going through. It's not just like XYZ widget or this type of preventive maintenance sensor, which is offered the service. It's like, tell me about the value you drove for that customer that can apply to all the other buildings whose elevators you service globally. And I think they're transitioning into doing that. Um, and it's from a strong base. The service delivery is often exceptional. How to leverage that to grow those partnerships over time, I think it's still relatively nascent. Uh, switch gears. Uh, service Council. How did you find out about it? What made you want to be a part of this community? Um, what are you getting from it? Yeah, first of all, grateful to be a member and really am sincerely looking forward to Chicago. Found out about it through our head of marketing, VP of marketing, Whitney Satin. Grateful to attend the council. And I think one of the things that struck me is we had a bunch of members. There are a bunch of members who are already our customers, which is always a good sign. And we're always looking for uh, ways to learn more about the industry. And I particularly appreciate what John and Sheila and team have done around making it not just some networking organization, but really thinking hard about professional services and what are the trends in the industry and what are we seeing and can we benchmark against that? And so I'm grateful to serve on the technology advisory board with a bunch of like-minded uh, executives at similar software companies serving this industry. And I think they've really leveled up the expectations. And so it doesn't feel like some sort of trade show type of thing. It feels like a bunch of people in the industry, you know, working together to get better. So build on that. Uh, how was your experience at the symposium last year? What are you most looking forward to this next year? I had a, a great time. It was one of the first, speaking of uh, the remote world, one of the first in-person events we had done. And as you mentioned, I was grateful to present some of our engineering team's hard work and win a prize. But it was also an opportunity to meet folks in adjacent industries we hadn't spent as much time in. We're across about 10 sub-verticals now, and I hadn't talked to some folks directly about that. It was also an opportunity to meet with some existing customers and you know, either users of our products that I hadn't personally met before or uh, other divisions, uh, folks that train technologies, for instance, and the service delivery side of things where we don't offer uh, software or data right now, but just to hear from folks like Rod Cook about some of the challenges they were having at the time. And we have a large deployment of that business. So that was that was really great. And uh, and, you know, be out there in the wild with uh, with humans, not on Zoom. Right. For our audience, just a reminder that 2022 Smarter Services Executive Symposium is September 19th through 21 back in Chicago. And as Charlie mentioned, it's a great gathering of practitioners who mm -hmm. show up and share. And Charlie, the other thing I appreciated was it wasn't all rose colored glasses, right? You oh, heard right. about challenges. You heard, I, I distinctly remember, you know, Jamie from Peloton talking about that last mile delivery of a service or Eduardo from, you know, BD talking about, you know, building and evolving the culture of service. And it's, it was fascinating to see very different companies, both challenged with similar challenges, but also seeing market opportunities and really mm -hmm. seeing, and as you said, a great chance to kind of collaborate in a non-competitive way. Here's what we're struggling with. Here's what we're doing. What are you doing? And mm -hmm. I, you heard a lot of that in the hallways and in the panels and sessions and as well as some really challenging topics, right? Diversity, right? In a mm -hmm. male dot white male dominated, you know, industry field service customers. How do you bring more of those less represented communities into the fold? How do you mm -hmm. go into inner cities and really build 
the value of the trade. I'm a big micro fan, right? Not every kid's right for college. How do you build the trades? And let's make mm -hmm. sure we got more welders and plumbers and all those mm -hmm. service elevator technicians that the industry needs. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's really the, I call it the backbone of the global economy and these companies have this incredible opportunity to, to build long-term careers for all sorts of folks. And there's a lot of responsibility there. And now I think they're also having trouble retaining people because of where the labor market is in terms of the number of opportunities out there. And so that's the other side of that equation is can we get people in and then can we keep them and not just the aging out workforce, but, but some of the, the Gen Z millennial generation and, and their expectations in these companies and the sort of offerings out there, other places to work. I heard about an OEM that's going into middle schools and are, and are, and are kind of in a, in an entertaining way, educating these kids of, look, there is, there's a career to be made in kind of field service engineering, field service kind of work and really getting them excited about and creating opportunities for them to shadow and kind of really hitting them early on of, look, there's another path for you to go pursue. Yeah. And if you look at, you know, almost all of these companies take Siemens, our partners at Siemens, for example, it's one of the most sophisticated hardware companies in the world. I mean, they're doing cutting edge stuff, ditto with Honeywell and some of these other businesses. You can attract great talent and great minds to work on those problems. And I think they're, they're doing a better job now than ever, but historically it's been really hard to compete against working on similar problems at Apple. Yeah, you brought up on the Service Council, the Tech Advisory Board, and and uh, likewise, was, uh, delighted to participate in the last conversation. And you're right, there's some really sharp kind of tech executives on that board who are all kind of working in the same space. Have you noticed some common, or, or can you comment on what are some of the common challenges, common opportunities for tech companies that are trying to work with these practitioners and really engage them in embracing this kind of digital first model? One that comes to mind is the education element of this. And we touched on this a bit before, but in some cases we're in the business of both solving problems and explaining what some of the problems are. And that's very delicate and it depends executive by executive, business by business, but everyone wants to be told that something's broken and that we're here to fix it. And I think a lot of those executives on the board would agree that that's a fine line to walk and figure out how to do that successfully. If you firmly believe you can provide value to those uh, partners, how, how do you do that? How do you have that conversation out of the gate? Mm. And, you, and back to your business model, are you guys going direct to market? Do you also work with channel partners or integrators or other kind of VARs, resellers, integrator types? We go direct to market primarily back to your uh, infinity loop. We want to be involved in the entire customer journey and have a seamless handoff. We do have some offerings that work well uh, paired with OEMs going to their channel. So we'll work with the OEM to work with their integrators and deploy our solutions to the folks that they work with in those either exclusive or non-exclusive relationships. But in terms of our go-to-market team, it's all direct. And I think that leads to better relationships long-term. That's fantastic. Talking about relationships, you and I also talked about slowly getting back on the road and uh, having those in-person events and, you know, dinners and, and, and really special kind of get togethers with these customers uh, in, as we hopefully come on the tail end of this pandemic. And what are you most excited about this next year? What are you most looking forward to? I'm looking forward to, I think two things. One, a lot of these trends, and we were talking about healthy buildings and, and some of the labor constraints, um, 
those are becoming more normalized and the solutions are have been developed to solve them. In the case of healthy buildings, it wasn't entirely clear whether or not you were a security access control company or an HVC business, like how you could actually solve that problem for cleaning the air. I think actually the solutions are pretty clear. And so I'm really excited to see these companies seize that opportunity. And on the, the labor side of things, again, that, that problem has been around for a long time. It has been thrust into sort of like the global spotlight now paired with the supply chain problems. but I'm pretty sure in my sense, from talking to our senior customers, they actually know how to solve it this year. And so I'm really excited to partner with them on that. Whereas certainly in 2020, but in 2021, it wasn't always clear exactly how they would be able to react to that. And they were literally developing new products and offerings as they went to. And kudos to them because a huge amount of um, value unlocked. Um, if you think about the amount of, for instance, um, COVID mitigation efforts deployed into schools, hospitals, again, back to the backbone of the global economy. I mean, these companies are really doing important work to keep people safe. Mm. And they did some really important stuff to even um, deploy the vaccines themselves. And so I think now they're in a steady state to expand those opportunities. Love, love that. So let me flip the coin. What are you most concerned about in this next year? What do you believe could threaten either your own business or the field service, customer service, customer experience space? I don't see any threats to our business. I'm very bullish. I think in the customer service and service business space, inflation is a complicated one a global or you know, global recession on top of that which a lot of folks are predicting could be challenging but back to the first point on the pricing partially due to i think technology challenges across the value and supply chain it's really hard to adapt prices at scale it's not something where you just like do this and it changes in the erp and everything prices accordingly there's often humans involved in these decisions and customers etc and i think the working through those pricing challenges, which we're, we're helping our customers do in a variety of cases is, is not a material challenge. It's not a material challenge for this coming year. Uh, I'm going to uh, wrap us up with this way we started you personally. So I'm a big believer that we're all products of the advice we take. Charlie, thinking about your own personal professional growth kind of trajectory, are there some mentors or piece of advice you got along the way that have shaped you as the executive or leader that you are today? I think I have plenty and I'm a big believer in, um, in seeking out advice and acknowledging that if you, and I would say, if you think you have this all figured out, then you're a terrible entrepreneur. Cause that's the whole point is to figure it out. And one comes to mind, and this is from one of our earlier advisors and investors. And he basically said, set clear goals and hold yourself to those and be very honest whether or not you make it. And this has spawned into a company value of ours around commitment. Say you're going to do something and go do it. And in business, that I think is actually the hardest thing to do at scale with large organizations to actually follow through on that, those commitments internally. And those are commitments to our customers and to our fellow Convexians within our company. And I, I really take that to heart and getting that, getting things done is, is hugely important ironically, very overlooked. And so I think about that advice daily. Lastly, again, I've always believed if I, if I knew then what I know now, I'd be a, you know, a lot wiser. What, what advice would you give Charlie 10 years ago or 15, 20 years ago that, that you think would have really served you well, a younger version of you well? 
I'm always focused on being a really good listener. And I think I've gotten pretty good in the last maybe five or 10 years, but 10 years ago, maybe not so much. And I think listening, in addition to actually getting stuff done in business is most important. And that informs how we run our whole company and sort of that the deep empathy for the end users themselves, but also just understanding where are the problems. And if you don't listen, and you know this, and um, certainly in sales and marketing, if you don't listen well, you're not going to be successful because you're not going to solve the right problem at the right time. And so I'm always pushing myself to be the best listener I can be. That's awesome. For our audience, if you joined us late, you've been listening to Charlie Warren, CEO of Convex. In this episode, we talked about driving efficient service revenue growth. I would encourage you to check out servicecouncil.com. And specifically, if you go under the research library, there's actually the in-service podcast series where you can see our past guests from Alex Ward at Cummins to Rod Cook that Charlie mentioned at uh, Train Technologies. We had Manuel Khan from Field Nation. A lot of other great executives have joined us in previous episodes. We bring these to you every couple of weeks or so. So I hope you'll continue to come back. And we're live on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter. We also release them in podcast format wherever you consume podcasts. On behalf of Service Council, I'm David Nor, your host. Look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you. Bye.